The COVID-19 pandemic has turned our world upside down. Meeting this challenge is bigger than any Australian. From how we work and how we live. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Don't travel. To the very basics of human interaction. Keep that social distance. If you're in an enclosed space, you should be wearing a mask. This is a time of total upheaval. It is a test of our nation. If you want this to be over, you've got to follow the rules. For many, 2020 will be the toughest year of our lives. And as we look to life beyond the virus, we ask, so now what? Today, who will rule the world? COVID-19's impacted all aspects of our lives, obviously, but global politics is likely to be no exception because like all nations, the two great superpowers of our age have had their 2020 deeply shaped by the virus. For the US, the mishandling of the pandemic has cost hundreds of thousands of lives. We'd much rather be ahead of the curve than behind it, and that's what we are. For the first time, coronavirus deaths in this country surpassed 100 in one day. Four months into the outbreak in this country, more than 126,000 lives lost. This crisis is spiraling out of control. The United States just topped 9 million confirmed coronavirus cases. Tonight, more Americans than ever are hospitalized with COVID. Deaths in the U.S. hitting 230,556. Cases are on an upward trajectory in just about the entire country. China is widely seen as the source of the pandemic. Wuhan, China, ground zero for the outbreak now under lockdown. It comes from China. That's why it comes from China. I want to be accurate. It's a virus that spread from China around the world, claiming Australian lives, making us sick and crippling our economy. Some say that it was a wet market inside Wuhan, but that may be to blame. But as the first vaccines begin their rollout, just what will the world stage look like once the virus passes? Will how countries have handled COVID-19 have long-term repercussions? What will that mean for their economies, for the political influence that they have, indeed for the soft power that they wield? And where, if anywhere, will countries like Australia fit into that new global political landscape? Together with Australians, we have been flattening that curve very successfully. Tonight, Victoria is free of COVID. We've notched up an incredible 28 days straight without an infection. It's one of the few places in the world that's actually managed to suppress a real second wave. For the first time in almost five months, Australia hasn't had a single case of community transmission. Australia is one of the countries that has done actually quite well. I really wish that we could transplant that mentality here because masks in the United States had almost become a political statement. There's a lot of complexity here. These are very choppy waters, so I will need some help to navigate them. And I'm delighted to say I have, among the best help I could find, really, Oxford University's professor, Rana Mitter, whose new book, China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism, is merely his latest exploring the rise of the world's next superpower. But also with us is a former senior White House staffer, Kim Hoggard, who served both the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations and is now with the United States Studies Center at Sydney University. It's a privilege to have both of you. So thank you very much, Rana and Kim, for joining us. I want to begin perhaps where I shouldn't, but with a thought experiment that might give you the opportunity to shed light on where we were before the pandemic. I want to ask each of you just to imagine for a moment that COVID-19 never happened. What do you think the new world order would look like five, 10 years from now, absent 
COVID-19. I'll start with you, Rana. I think that one element that was certainly moving very fast on China's side in the last year or so before the pandemic hit would have moved faster. And that is the question of China spreading its technological ecosystem, you might want to put it that way, through large parts of the world, by which I mean the provision of 5G. I mean the ability to use various of its private companies, all of which, of course, are very heavily influenced by the Communist Party in areas like artificial intelligence and surveillance and so forth. We saw that they nearly managed to get a deal in a country like India, which was looking quite seriously at uh, that sort of Chinese 5G provision. That basically went downhill for, ver- for various reasons, but one of them was essentially the aggressiveness of China's response internationally to the COVID pandemic. There are also other parts of the world, including sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, where that growth in Chinese technology might still happen. But it's still been, I think, held back a bit because so much of the world has been disconcerted by the confrontational nature of China's diplomacy. So I think that tech advancement on China's part has been slowed down from where it would have been had there been no pandemic. And what do you think the geopolitical consequences of that technological onward march would have been? Does it mean increased or enhanced political power right across the globe? I think it would have meant that there was an e- there would have been an easier pathway to, for China to have much more dominance in the provision of that absolutely essential technology to many countries around the world, both in the richer world and the uh, emerging world. I think that because of the COVID pandemic, but also because of the reaction of many countries that have been dismayed by the way that China has, has acted uh, to confrontation over the COVID question, that other Western companies are now looking to rev up their tech industries. And of course, we have seen the United States under the now outgoing Trump administration has really put turbochargers under that effort to try and create more technology indigenously in Western countries, particularly the US, and try and shut out Chinese technology. I think that that trend would have been there, but less pronounced than it is now, had it not been for COVID. So Kim, that delivers us neatly to the United States. And I suppose the narrative of China's rise is sort of mirrored in the narrative of America's slow decline as a power over time. Absent COVID, how do you think that would have played out? In the case of the United States, if COVID did not happen, I think we could very well have seen the re-election of Donald Trump. So right away, we would be dealing with a United States that was continuing down its America first isolationist style of approach and possibly the second phase of a China trade deal to be negotiated after having uh, signed off on the first phase back in January. Uh, Of course, we've seen with COVID now, President Trump has gone off China completely, has blamed China for what's happened uh, with the virus and for what's happened in the United States with the virus, for that matter, and a completely different different landscape. And of course, a, a new direction for the United States now with the election of Joe Biden. I think the new world order would have looked a little bit of more of the same and probably looking a little bit more dangerous uh, with an America if it were to continue, had it continued down an America first uh, trajectory. Well, I was just going to come in off the back of uh, that, uh, Waleed, and say, um, I can say something that perhaps Kim can't since she's an American and I'm not, but (laughs) I'm not sure I accept the idea that America actually is in decline or China is rising inexorably. Of course, the global position between the two of them has shifted quite significantly in the last few uh, years and indeed decades. But I think what the recent election of Joe Biden has shown, and you know, may well be the case since it's very early days because he hasn't even been inaugurated yet, but when America wants to, it still has far more capacity to lead 
than China will have for years, if at all. It's basically the choice of the Trump administration that it didn't want to work with its allies. It didn't want to take international leadership up. It didn't want to provide a trade as well as a security element in big questions that are very relevant, of course, for Australia, like, you know, should you go into RCEP, which, of course, you have just done? Should you be part of the new CPTPP if the US comes back into that? But that's all basically a series of choices by the US. If the Biden administration or any other administration actually decided to tick the yes rather than the no box, then I think America would absolutely be seen as a leading power in uh, Asia rather than declining. And I think that the obstacles in China's way are still very considerable. Of course, it is a huge trading nation. Every single country in the Asia Pacific has China as its major, major trading partner. And of course, in Australia, I think something like a third of your trade is currently with the Chinese. But with these other big questions like security, like global institutions, like global governance, China still has a very long way to go to get its story being heard and to be felt to be plausible by much of the rest of the world, even in places where its money is quite welcomed. Let's just for a second game out the situation where COVID doesn't happen and Donald Trump gets re-elected. Maybe, Kim, it might be helpful just for listeners to be quite concrete about what the isolation means. You know, we've seen sort of glimpses of it in, you know, the withdrawal of funding from the World Health Organization, for example, the withdrawal from uh, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. So there are those sort of things that grab a lot of headlines. Is there something deeper to it that people need to appreciate? Well, I think it's uh, first and foremost, America's own threats to itself. You know, we've been so concerned about foreign interference in American elections or into discourse and social media. But really, the divisions are exacerbated by politicians themselves and by the American population themselves because of the polarization that has developed over the last several decades. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that had COVID not occurred, that America America's decline would have continued. It certainly would have been more inward in its in its outlook in dealing with global issues and taking a stand and being at the head of the table internationally had Trump been reelected. So we were just talking about a hypothetical. Obviously, with China, there are huge obstacles for them taking the leadership role in the sense that you know they they have their own internal control mechanisms and anxieties and you know difficulties in keeping an enormous population in control um they have sovereignty anxieties you know they they don't, they're not friendly with their own neighbors whereas at least the united states at least up until the trump administration was pretty friendly with its neighbors <laughs> so, and it has its own internal environmental social and and public health issues, uh, just as America does. But the main thing is it's a communist country. So how are you going to maintain a a, a superpower sort of leading nation influence around the world if you're a communist country? But, you know, the rest of the world has also been waiting with bated breath for this election to see which direction the United States was going to go whether it was going to be a player or on the global stage, or whether it was going to be confrontational and isolationist. And we've barely gotten through this election to, to see you know, that the United States is going to hopefully rejoin the world stage and, and try to regain uh, some of what it's lost in terms of its stature. But yes, China has many challenges as well. And the biggest thing going against it is its Communist Party. 
Oh, just on that, Rana, how communist is China exactly and in what sense? Because I often hear this phrase that China is, is commun- a communist country with Chinese characteristics, uh, that it's really state-led capitalism. It's quite a mercantile country in, in some sorts of ways. When we say China's a communist country, what does that mean now? I think what we're saying is that one of the strands of thought, and it's just one of the strands of thought which still shapes the way in which China's leaders, and actually China's widest po- wider population more broadly defined thinks, is a, in some ways, quite traditional attachment to Marxist-Leninist thinking in particular. And the way that you can tell that, actually, is by looking at the way in which the theoretical journals of the Chinese Communist Party, which I promise you are a killer read if you've got a few beers and you want to sort of stretch out in the garden and have a read through <laughs> the latest edition of Chiu Shu, the Journal of Theoretical Thought of the Communist Party, there's plenty there that actually would be very recognisable to anyone who knew the kind of Marxist theory that you would read in the mid-20th century. So phrases like struggle, or actually one that Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, has used over and over again, Mao Dun, meaning contradiction. Now, that's actually a very specifically Marxist, you might actually say, if you want to go really back in time, Hegelian term, to talk about the way in which forces in society come up against each other and have to be resolved. And it doesn't have to be a class struggle, it can be an environmental struggle. So those ideas are in some ways quite traditionally Marxist and have been put into communist usage, but they exist alongside a use of traditional Chinese thought, you know, the thinkers like Confucius from the ancient past, a dependence on China's modern history to help define it, including its history of victimization, what the Chinese still call the century of humiliation, referring to the period from the mid-19th century when the opium wars were brought upon it by the, the West to the mid-20th century when the subject I've written a lot about, World War II in China, really smashed the country into pieces. And beyond that, of course, the economic argument. And it's fair to say that China is not a classic Soviet-style command economy. It was back under Chairman Mao, but that's a long time ago now. But it is certainly a self-declared socialist country, which does have, of course, a substantial private sector, but it's a private sector which is very heavily entwined with the Communist Party. You can become a top-level executive in a big company in China, you know, Baidu, Alibaba, these sorts of, of companies. You can have your shares go up and down, quite often up on the stock market. But if you get to a certain level, the Communist Party definitely wants to know about you, probably wants to have you join. And it's going to certainly be a very important part of your life as a corporate leader, business leader, media leader, academic leader, whatever it might be, the party is everywhere in China. Right. Okay. So let's then talk about the damage that has been done throughout COVID-19. And in some ways, the more interesting one to me is the soft power damage, the reputational damage. Would it be fair to say, um, just as as an opening gambit, would both of you agree that both countries have had a bad pandemic? Kim, I'll start with you. Well, definitely the United States has. They've had no national leadership really uh, coordinating a response to dealing with the virus internally. The president has pitted state governors against one another early on in, in terms of receiving supplies of PPE and ventilators. You know, it's exposed the weaknesses in, in America's ability to access supplies and everyone's reliance on China to provide supplies, whether it was PPE or even hand sanitizer. You know, the United States had to repurpose businesses just to, to manufacture enough of that. But also just the conspiracy around it, the president telling people that this could be, you know, this, this was just a flu, that it would magically disappear. This is going to go away without a vaccine. It's going to go away, and it's, uh, we're not going to see it again, hopefully. A lot of people think that goes away in April. 
with the heat. View this the same as the flu. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. And this is their new hoax. Disinfectant knocks it out in a minute. I mean, the president had a real opportunity here to guide the nation through this pandemic. But he was so concerned about the stock market and the economy that he couldn't see past that. He diminished the United States profile and uh, people's other countries' respect for the United States in, in the way he's managed it. Did he or did he just diminish his own level of respect? Oh, no. I think, I think the United States wears this. Absolutely. Donald Trump is a symptom of problems that have existed in the United States for some time. Anytime you have uh, political parties, both Republican and Democrat, who put forward 16, 17, 20 candidates to run for the presidential nomination, as was the case in 2016 uh, with Republicans and in 2020 with Democrats, that tells you there's something going wrong in the political system in that people aren't trusting it. People haven't trusted the government for some time. That's been fomented by a lot of uh, commentary and and right-wing media that's existed for several decades. And with the internet and social media and the ability to to just say what you want without any proof. And and particularly in right-wing media where there's no obligation or regulation or requirement that insists that they present a balanced point of view. So... You know, this has really damaged America. Also, of course, the growing inequity in the country. And and that was also exposed during this pandemic. So I think America has to wear this. I mean, Donald Trump exacerbated these issues. But uh, I think the U.S. has suffered. But I do think the U.S. can come back from this with, with some good hard work. Rana, I want to get to China and its response to the pandemic in a second, but maybe let me come at this from another angle first. What do you think China has made of America's response to the pandemic? Do they see an opportunity? Do they see um, differences in political power that they might be able to exploit, anything like that? Oh, yes. And you just have to look at Chinese social media, which is all, you know, very freely available. And, you know, if you can read Chinese, then you can see fairly clearly what opinions are on that. They've basically done, you know, really exactly the message that, that Kim has just been giving with, I think, great, great shrewdness there. They've been saying that this shows that America is a declining power. Uh, it basically has, you know, huge numbers of resources and yet has a death rate that would be an embarrassment to, you know, any country, let alone the, uh, you know, the most powerful country in the world. So, yes, it's absolutely how the American response to COVID has been used both by China's leaders and by China's media and, you know, wider social media environment, which is just ordinary middle class people talking to each other, people to say, actually, thank goodness I don't live in the United States. And that's something that actually is surprising on the grounds that until recently, many Chinese actually rather feared the United States. They didn't trust the United States, but they admired many things about it grudgingly, but they admired it. Now, even that admiration seems to have worn off because of what they perceive as a really ill-judged coronavirus response. And what do you think the effects of that are? Like, it's one thing to say, oh, they handled that badly. Does that express itself in concrete consequences at the international level? I think first at the national level, before the international level, it's had a very strong consequence, which is that China's Communist Party, which always likes to push forward the idea that its system of top-down, very controlled authoritarianism 
is much more efficient and, as they would often put it, meritocratic compared to what they regard as the messiness of democracy. Well, 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 sorry, what do you mean by meritocratic there? That's an interesting idea. Well, not, not, what, not what I mean by that, but what is put forward by people who argue that the Chinese Communist Party have, has a case. So sure. an example of that would be yeah. the political scientist Daniel Bell. So he's a Westerner, but he works in, in China. He's written a lot about this. He would argue, and he would draw on a lot of Chinese Communist Party sources to, to say this, that because China does not rely on popular election, which can throw up, as they would see it, random candidates like Donald J. Trump to get to the top, you can't be a leader in China without actually having shown your performance level at lower levels. So, you know, if you run your village well, you may get up to, uh, to be promoted to the party at the province. Uh, right. If you run your province well, you might be ro rotated around, become a mayor of somewhere. And then eventually, you know, if you get far enough, you might get onto the top level of the Politburo but that ain't going to happen unless someone has done at least three or four really good tours of duty elsewhere in China. And as they point out, a single Chinese province can have the population of three or four times a country like Australia or Canada. So it's quite a test to go through. That's what they mean by a meritocratic system. Of course, there are many flaws in that, not least that it can often be very arbitrary in different ways. And of course, there's plenty of corruption as well. But in terms of the way that China's governed, they say, well, look, we didn't become the world's second biggest economy just by accident. We must be doing something right. And that so-called meritocracy is what they would point to as the alternative to the democratic liberal system that exists in most Western countries. Right. Okay. That's fascinating. So that's at the domestic level. Uh, at the international level, you were going to go on and say? Yeah. So I think that what China is doing at the moment is pushing forward an argument that essentially its own response to the coronavirus domestically and internationally shows that China should take more of a leadership role. And the US at the moment, I think, has rather let them, them get away with this, because the argument there is that in China, yes, our initial response, they would say, uh, you know, had some flaws in it. And they, they mostly managed to blame everything on local level leaders who let the virus get out of control in the city of Wuhan down in the, uh, the south before, as they would say, the central leadership stepped in and uh, sorted it out. I, I have to say that outside observers have some questions about that. Indeed, the Australian <laughs> government has gotten into some trouble recently by suggesting that isn't the full story. But that's the story China is, is taking to international uh, institutions. And what they now say is that when you look at China's role in wider society, we'll look at the World Health Organization, they would say that they are the country that are doing much more than anyone else to actually roll out, for instance, um, the, the vaccines they've been trying out to the third world. Now, as we know that within the last few weeks, a whole variety of Western countries, the US, um, also the UK, have been producing new vaccines. It may be that that Chinese head start in telling that story is now going to get pulled aside and perhaps they won't have that, uh, uh, that capacity to tell the story after all. But for the last few months, there's been a very, very dominant message going out, actually not least said by Xi Jinping himself, that if China develops the vaccine first, then it will distribute it to the wider world. Well, they haven't done it yet, but as a message, it was very powerful in many parts of the non-Western world, in you know, sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America, simply because the Western response seemed to be so scattershot, so disorganized, and so incapable of thinking outside people's individual national borders. So on that side, China had, at least for a short time, a really quite effective story to tell to the rest of the world. I'm a bit befuddled by the Chinese response. I think a lot of people would look at it and say, right, China suppressed important information about the virus in the early stage, and as a result is complicit in the fact that we have a global pandemic uh, in the first place. Things might have been done had China been more transparent and more cooperative early on. However, they did respond extremely effectively to the virus once it did reach that stage, and they've managed to bring it under control, which is an extraordinary effort within a, in a country that size, I mean, that many people. 
um, and that densely populated in a lot of areas. At the same time, there was this incredible, I remember early on, I don't know if it's continued or not, but this incredible diplomatic push that China um, went on where it was disseminating PPE to countries all over the world, apparently whether they needed it or not, as far as China's global or international political interests and reputation are concerned. Do they still remain the country that unleashed the virus on the world? I'm afraid internationally, I don't think it has been that successful for China. I think that they've been sending out so many mixed signals that actually whatever effort they were trying to make has really gone badly. I mean, you've mentioned the so-called mask diplomacy, which was sending out large amounts of PPE, paper masks, that sort of thing. It turned out an awful lot of that equipment actually wasn't really up to scratch and people didn't find it so usable. So initial gratitude often had people saying, well, actually, this stuff was perhaps being sent more for propaganda purposes than through genuine altruism. There's a wider question of how the Chinese conducted that diplomacy. And the problem is that over the last few months, it's coincided with what has been nicknamed wolf warrior diplomacy. Uh, this is named after a, a famous Chinese movie about five years ago, uh, Janlang, the wolf warrior, which is about a sort of bunch of Chinese special forces who go to North Africa and, you know, sort of shoot them up at the, um, in that country while rescuing various Chinese hostages. But it's been used as a shorthand for the very confrontational language that's been used by Chinese diplomats, foreign ministry spokespeople, all those sorts of, of, of folks who have been saying, nobody can question China about anything that's happened to do with the pandemic. We only have good intentions and anyone who says anything else is an enemy of ours. It was quite Trumpy in a way, actually, you know, the way that um, they were saying that we've got the story and if you don't believe it, then actually you don't get to disagree in good faith. We're, we're going we're gonna to bite right back at you. And that, I think, has done a lot to really harm China's image. The last opinion poll uh, survey I saw here in the UK, where I'm sitting at the moment, on China's favorability had basically China with an 83% unfavorable rating amongst the wider UK population which is pretty low. I mean, it was, never, it was never that high in the first place, but that really is a kind of new low. And that's largely because of this very aggressive language that's been, um, uh, been used by the diplomats. I know that it's also a problem because you can actually see, if you look more carefully, that Chinese diplomats, including some of the more seasoned and sober and sensible people, including, I would say, actually the former ambassador to your country, to Australia, and also to, to mine, the, the UK, Madame Fuying, who's now a vice foreign minister, She's actually been quite public in saying in various places that maybe China needs, needs to just sort of calm down and cool off a bit because this kind of very aggressive diplomacy is not doing the country any favours. So overall, certainly in the Western world, I'd say that China has not found the right register, not found the right tone. I, I, I would say and have said on occasion that Chinese diplomacy moves from being saccharine to being shrill and then back again at great speed without moderation right. in between. I would just, I would just back up, uh, Ron, as they're talking about the wolf warrior diplomacy and the language. You're right to point out, Ron, the uh, Fu Ying, who the New York Times published an article by her, which really, to me, sounded almost like a bit of an overture and an opening to the new Biden administration coming across, you know, as a bit of a moderate and, and looking at outlining ways that the U.S. and China could work together. So I found that quite interesting because recently we've had a lot of hand-wringing going on, particularly in the United States, with uh, various speeches by well-regarded people such as Henry Kissinger and Hank Paulson and uh, even Kevin Rudd speaking out about the confrontation between the U.S. and China and their suggestions for how the uh, two nations could, could, could work together and avoid what Kissinger was worried about, which was a trajectory towards a, a possible military conflict.
that seems to cover off the reputational and soft aspects of power with it for these superpowers. What about the harder aspects? So economic and political power. Do you see these as having been quite profoundly affected as a result of COVID-19? Kim, we'll start with you with America, but you can comment on China if you feel inclined. Well, you know, I think so much has has affected uh, America's reputation, its belief in itself with the rising China, the as I described a minute ago, the, the, the hand-wringing going on on how to, how to deal with it. In American foreign policy, we've had these, over the decades uh, since World War II, these, these grand strategies d- devised that America has followed. You know, we had George Kennan, who was the famous State Department Foreign Service officer who designed the post-World War II policy of containment you know, how, how to fight the Cold War with the Soviet Union and, and trying to block its expansion. Basically, it was just to keep it in check and sit patiently and, and wait for them to sort of destroy themselves from within. And, and uh, you know, pretty much that, that determined the foreign policy, the shape of U.S. foreign policy with the, with the Soviet Union for many decades. You know, it was basically focused on containment, mutual assured destruction in terms of nuclear weapons and fighting the communist ideology. You know, with China, Deng Xiaoping's grand strategy apparently was just to observe carefully, you know, hide Chinese capacities, bide their time, walk very slowly, be very inward. And Nixon and Kissinger, you know, worked very hard to open up China. Xi Jinping's grand strategy is more about really getting out there in the world with the, for instance, the Belt and Road Initiative and and uh, trying to influence the international economic order. And, and that's probably more threatening to the United States than what Chinese or, or even Soviet, except for the nuclear weapons, of course. But you know, that that was that containment felt comfortable. This this isn't this is so different. And, and really, America's looking at what, what is its grand strategy for this moment? You know, we've had America first, which has been antagonistic and has been isolationist and has, has seen America drop out of multilateral institu- multinational institutions and, and trade agreements and treaties of all sorts um, and not replacing them really with a whole lot. And and cha- and trying to challenge China single-handedly, which is never going to work either. As far as hard power, America has an incredible amount of influence here. Its its military is second to none, and its expertise, its technological ability, it's really should be stepping in to this moment now to gain the ground on on technological innovation and uh, laying the reforms and the groundwork needed to control or to regulate that expansion across the globe. It has the ability to do that. It has the mouse. It has the, um, you know, the, the intellect and the ability in, in the country to do that. It needs a political system and a bipartisanship that will enable it to do so. So the American economy has obviously taken a big hit. Rana, we're less familiar, I think, with the performance of the Chinese economy through the the COVID-19 experience. How has it gone and what does that mean for its harder power? I think that the Chinese economy was already undergoing a whole variety of changes even before COVID hit. If you want to sum it up in really a, a, a phrase, the phrase that the Chinese Communist Party itself uses is that it's going for what it calls a dual circulation economy from now on. 
And what they mean by that is that it would have essentially two parts that are connected, but are supposed to be quite separate. One is a domestic economy, which is going to try and protect more strongly from the outside world, because of course, they've been very worried about the fact that global supply chains, which China, of course, is you know, on one end of in, in, in many cases, have proved very, very vulnerable during the COVID pandemic. And there are some areas particularly dear to the hearts of, of China's um, leaders in terms of high-tech development, where the uh, Chinese are still very vulnerable. So semiconductor chips will be a very good example of that. They still essentially are very dependent on the US for that very important element of China's high-value technological uh, part of the economy. And domestic production of semiconductors has now become an example of a top priority that people are being urged to put as much investment and time into as possible. But at the same time, China also continues to want to have essentially a very strong trading relationship exporting to the rest of the world. And these two things are actually quite difficult to maintain at the same time because they want both to keep what seems like a very large trade surplus, which is growing at the moment. But they also want to develop a high level of domestic consumption to uh, drive that part of the economy. And the two are not easily compatible with, uh, with each other. In the short term, China, I think, does have an advantage in terms of where it is now because Although, of course, it suffered very badly at the start of this year, 2020, in terms of the hit from the pandemic, the ability to control the virus very successfully, to be frank, has meant that the economy is beginning to come back quite fast. I mean, domestic consumption is now only about a third of what it was this time last year. But, you know, a third of an economy that size is still a very large you know, lump of spending and it will continue to, uh, to grow. Where I think they do worry is about whether or not those export markets are going to continue to be available and the Belt and Road Initiative the huge attempt by China to create this massive ecosystem, you might say, which stretches in one definition from Western Europe through to the Horn of Africa, through to Southeast Asia, in terms of providing uh, funding for infrastructure and creating uh, a kind of economic network, that has been faltering a bit in recent years. The Belt and Road has not been at the kind of heights that it was perhaps four or five years ago. And I think that the fear is that because of the COVID pandemic, the ability to ch of China to continue to actually pump spending overseas, either in, in the case of foreign direct investment, or actually more likely the creation of more debt through its um, uh, export development banks. That's now much more in, uh, in question. China in general domestically has a pretty bad debt problem. It's been trying its best to try and sort of squeeze the debt out of the economy, most of which was created after the great financial crisis of 2008, you know, the last great uh, disaster that we had for the, the world economy. So while the initial signs are that China is doing well off the back of where it is, uh, where it had been a few months ago, it's not out of the woods. So my impossibly crude impression of all of this is that in relative terms, China, China's power grows relative to the United States. Um, it, that was going to happen anyway. However, in absolute terms, both come out of this, in a sense, diminished reputationally and then, of course, the economic hit that they've taken. It makes me wonder what that means for a country like mine, so for Australia, which is not a major power, it's a middle power. It's handled the health situation by global standards extraordinarily well, notwithstanding the fact that it had to endure a second wave in Victoria. But even its response to that second wave is world class. You would have to say in the end that it's got effectively to elimination. So it's done that. It is a, a high income country. It, it, it's economically powerful, but a small country. So it's limited in that sense. 
is there a, a moment here where middle powers that have handled the health crisis really well might come into their own? I would say that actually Australia specifically has been showing quite a lot of shrewdness in terms of the way in which it's been measuring up its options. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, and as I'm sure you know very well, over 30% of Australia's trade is with China. It's a very, very major trading partner, and that's not going to change anytime very soon. I have to say that Australia's recent experience of uh, being slightly bruised by China in terms of exports being suddenly cut off because of Australia questioning the, the COVID response has given some pause for thought here in the UK. China has stepped up its diplomatic assault on Australia over our demands for an investigation into how COVID-19 started. There seems to be rising tensions between China and Australia. Maybe the ordinary people will see why should we drink Australian wine, eat Australian beef. Fears this morning Australia's trade stoush with Beijing is deepening amid reports that Australian lobster exports are being held up by Chinese customs officers. Only Australia's coal shipments have been targeted. We don't have anything like that amount of our trade with China. It's less than 3%. And the question is, would you want to raise it more if you felt that you were vulnerable in that way? But I think that actually Australia has been responding in ways that show that it's able both to be positive and to be firm when it wants to. And by that, I mean that on the one hand, it seems to me that Australia has been encouraging the talks which have been going on for quite some time about what's known as the Quad, the idea of a security uh, partnership, if not necessarily a full alliance between Japan, Australia, India and the United States, particularly on naval matters, just to make sure that the PLA Navy in uh, the Indian Ocean in particular, as well as in the South China Sea, doesn't necessarily get everything its own way. And that is obviously something that China, I think, objects to quite strongly. But the fact that Australia has decided that its defence future involves talking to allies in that sort of a way and being realistic about China's role in the in the region is, I think, an important development. But it's also very significant that, as we were also mentioning just a, a few days ago, uh, as we speak, Australia was one of the signatories to the RCEP, which essentially, you know, is China's initiative in terms of creating a free trade environment amongst a large number, I think it's 15 Asia Pacific nations. And that's also, I think, Australia showing China and the rest of the world, look, if you want to play cooperative, we will be cooperative. I think in some ways, the United States over the last four years under President Trump has shown you can be the most powerful country in the world and still deeply misjudge your alliances and your confrontations. And Australia's case shows that in many cases, actually, you can juggle the two things. You don't always get everything right. But overall, you don't have to be the most powerful to make the most sensible decisions overall. Perhaps climate change, um, withstanding that, I think, uh, Rana, because, well, we have an ongoing conversation in this country, which you may not pick up from over there, but about just how far we've fallen down the international pecking order on climate change. Th th that I will pick up. I mean, we do remember that just before all the other disasters of 2020, Australia on fire was one of the headlines that certainly made it even over here to the UK. Yeah. And I'm certainly not making a case about any one particular government, because actually I would say that the two things I've mentioned trade and security have in some ways been sort of passed like a ball back and forth across a net between Liberal and Labour governments over the last 15, 20 years. I think the point is that Australia has known, you know, ever since Gough Whitlam, really, but certainly I think since Hawke Keating, that it is part of the Asia Pacific. It has to think of itself as being part of that. And if we're going to talk critically about our own countries, I would say that even though the UK in its post-Brexit environment is thinking very hard about a much stronger Asia-Pacific role and friendships and partnerships, which I think is great, we should not forget that Europe is still our nearest neighbour and we have to have a good relationship with them as well. So my own country, while it's a wonderful country that has made many sensible decisions, I think should not step away from its own geography 
as it looks in slight danger of doing at the moment. Oh, I'm tempted to go down a Brexit rabbit hole with you. How many hours have you got? I know. That's well. That's the great thing about Brexit, right? <laughs> Just you can never stop talking about it. Although that's simultaneously its curse. Um, Kim, what do you think about Australia's role? Is it an enhanced role as a result of its handling of COVID and the relative handling of the US and China? I, I certainly think the world looks with admiration on countries like Australia and New Zealand for the way that they've handled this crisis. I mean, they've benefited by being able to control their borders, by being islands, and by having small populations. But, you know, I always find this such an interesting dynamic uh, in Australia. There's so much concern on the part of Australian governments and and uh, business leaders about what a, what America thinks about Australia. I get this question all the time, mm. and I really just want to grab Australia by the shoulders and say, "Have some confidence in yourself, man. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> just do your thing. You're 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 a solid country. You're a solid democracy, despite your political." eruptions that have occurred in the last decade with multiple prime ministers, you know, you've, you've gotten through that period. And it, Australia has always been a responsible player. The, the relationship with the United States is so important to them, but it can't override the importance that Australian governments must put into their own region. And I think Australia, in, uh, by and large, have done a good job at being a good neighbor. Well, although, although can I say that it has faced criticism from within in its own foreign policy community on precisely that point. So abandoning the Pacific, failing to pay attention to the Pacific sufficiently, and even Asia, and leaving a, a gap for China to come in, particularly with debt instruments, and start wielding power. And I wonder whether or not that's actually a legitimate criticism that's been made. Well, it is legitimate. You're right. When I said by and large, I was being generous. <laughs> don't, don't feel the need to be generous here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, t- in terms of responding to natural disasters in the region right. or in East Timor, uh, that, that sort of response that Australians provide, not just the government, but the Australian public responds to, is, is one of its strengths. And it should always, always maintain its position as someone who, as a country that where human rights are important, uh, where being a good neighbor is important. I entirely agree with Kim on, on, on what she's saying about Australia's place. And I'd add something else. Broadly speaking, you know, when one of your diplomats or indeed one of your, when one of your ministers turns up anywhere in the world, and I'd certainly include London in that, people are generally very pleased to see you. And that actually is something that you can't necessarily measure on an index, but actually it's a very important measure of how a country is regarded. I mean, at the moment, Beijing may be the one capital where that's not true, and it's a pretty important capital. But if you think about almost anywhere else in the world, having a sense that people think that, as Kim was rightly saying, you know, you are sort of sensible players who, broadly speaking, as someone, as someone said about the United States, will do the right thing, possibly after choosing every, every other option first. <laughs> That's not a bad position to be in in a world where things are changing a great deal. I would say certainly at the moment, uh, you know, in the UK, Australia is regarded as one of those countries along with, you know, Canada and, uh, and perhaps some of, you know, the and Norway is another one that we've been talking about a lot, as a country that is able to find some sense of itself while, we hope, getting along with the neighbours and creating a generally positive vibe in the wider world. And I think overall, over time, Australia has been pretty good at that. 
Right. So that's true. I think that's a fair characterization of Australia. It's just that it's for a long time now, for decades, we've seen the iceberg looming in that we are caught between these two superpowers, the United States and China. Are we likely to be courted here, like just torn asunder as the tectonic plates between America and China move and, and, and groan and throw up all kinds of debris? Or is there a clear, easy enough way for us to navigate this that we will fall upon or happen upon one way or another? There's no easy way, because if there was, I think probably you guys would have discovered it by now. But I think in a sense, the dilemma is perhaps for an unfortunate reason, slightly simpler than it appears that way. When it comes to security questions, it will be a very, very long time, if ever, before China is seen as any kind of alternative to the United States and the either alliance or at least partnership with other countries in the region, such as Japan, South Korea, to some extent, Singapore, and so forth, which still share a range of values that you know include democracy, include the sense that kind of open navigation and so forth should not be controlled by any one country. That's not to say that China doesn't have huge numbers of merits. And again, you know, so as not to, to make it clear, this is not necessarily a negative statement at all. China's economic message to the world, I think, is a really interesting and exciting one. Uh, it's poverty alleviation, you know, bringing millions of people, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty over many decades is a real achievement. I think Chinese investment, FDI, has really been very important in places like sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, in changing the nature of their economies for, for the better. So it's not as if China doesn't have a huge amount to offer on that front. But I think that when it comes to markets, which is really, I think, where the relationship with Australia is powerful, I think that's always going to have to be juggled with the fact that your security is more naturally going to be with democratic partners and with the United States in particular. And I think it's very unlikely that that will change at any time soon. Kim? I absolutely agree. And I'm glad you brought that up, Rana, because it, 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 it harks back to what I was saying before about China, whether it can usurp the United States in terms of as the leading uh, superpower and it's communism that's holding it back. And for that very reason, those security issues that you raise, the security risks that people, uh, other countries will have and Western democracies and and other de democratic leaning countries will have, that will remain, that suspicion will remain. So, you know, the first thing a country needs to establish with other countries is trust. America has used up some of its trust these last four years. It's, it's damaged its alliances. It's buddied up to dictators. But I think it can return now with the Biden administration to a, a more normal sort of diplomatic and multilateral approach to issues, and, and we can regain that trust. But China is never going to be able to establish an absolute trust. Let's wrap up with a watching brief, shall we? Kim, what are you watching? Well, I'm just looking sort of very near term at the moment. I'm uh, on two things. One, I'm watching the Georgia Senate runoff race, which will determine the majority in the Senate and will determine whether Republicans retain control or the Biden administration uh, gets a parity uh, and equal footing in the Senate and has the majority and will be able to enact legislation a lot more, more easily. The other thing I'm watching just out of curiosity is who the U.S. trade representative will be, because in dealing with China, who that trade rep is 
is going to be critical right now. Uh, Robert Lighthouser's been been the trade rep. There's even rumors I've heard quite recently that Biden might be looking at keeping him on, which would be very, very interesting. Uh, so those are two things I'm watching. Rana, what are you watching? I'm keeping an eye on North Korea, which is one of those stories that sort of flares up every few years and then seems to disappear. But there are signs of activity, some of it rather sinister looking, happening in that half of the Korean peninsula. I think Kim Jong-un wants some attention. And I bring it up actually because bizarrely, it might be a positive story for the following reason. We have come across many areas, and we've discussed them uh, in this conversation, where the US and China might be at loggerheads in the next few years. But actually, I think that both sides really do have an interest in finally solving, if they can, that Korean problem. And if, as seems possible, there is now an opening up of channels between uh, Beijing and Washington in a way that was rather shut down during the Trump administration, it might be that deciding to try and resolve the North Korea problem, at least for the foreseeable future, will be a chance for the US and China to show that they can work together. And also, at least for the moment, neutralize one of the most potentially flashpoint dangerous areas in the whole of the Asia Pacific region. So I would keep an eye on that in the near future and see if it turns into something interesting. It might just do. That does sound extremely interesting. Thank you to both of you, by the way. And Rana, congratulations on getting through all of this without discussing the EU at length. Next time, Waleed, next time. I I was tempted to subject you to that, but I I figured I would spare you the torture in the circumstances, although I suspect (laughs) there's a very interesting story unfolding there. Kim, Rana, it's it's rare to get access to people of your caliber, so thank you very much for helping me out today. Thank you very much, Waleed. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Ten News First Person brings you quality stories from the Ten News First team. Yeah, it was intense. It was uh, Armageddon. Eyewitness accounts from people that were there. I just started to try and free myself. You know, I had one free arm. I was able to dig around my face and free my other arm. Interviews with power brokers, journalists telling the stories that matter most to them. People power now. We will not be silent. Subscribe to 10 News First Person wherever you listen to podcasts.